Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Yeah. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Stephanie Valance, filling in for Caitlin Dwyer. This episode is a part of a series exploring the stories and experiences of Asian Americans in a climate of anti-Asian rhetoric and increasing violence, like the mass shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, earlier this year. It is produced as a part of the Oregon Rises Above Hate Coalition, and is made possible by a generous contribution by Anne Nato Campbell. Liani Reeves spent the first months of her life in an orphanage in Seoul, South Korea, before an American family adopted her. She describes her early years as those of a typical American childhood. She loved cats, building snow forts, and playing outside with friends. But Liani was also very angry. She battled deep-seated fears of abandonment, and over the years buried a mix of emotions while trying to make sense of so many identities. As an orphan, an adoptee, an Asian American, an Asian American woman, and as an immigrant. Elena Yusin has her story. Liani was raised by a white family in the all-white upstate New York community of Boiseville in the late 70s. As a child, she had no sense of herself as Korean. I was the only Asian kid in my class up until about fifth grade when there was another Korean student in my class, Michael Lee, and everybody decided that Michael Lee and I should get married. It was an odd concept for me because I never associated myself with being Korean, even though I was born in Korea. And so that was sort of the first time when I realized that other people saw me as Asian, even though I didn't necessarily identify as Asian up until that point. I didn't have any real... Korean friends. Um, And the model of adoption at that point in time was to assimilate. Adoption agencies told parents, assimilate your children, don't keep a connection to your birth country, you know, sever all ties and integrate them into your American Caucasian home. And so that was just so foreign to me uh, when other students decided that because I came from Korea that I should marry this Korean boy that we had nothing in common. I mean, he grew up in a Korean home and ate Korean food and spoke Korean language. And we had nothing in common other than these students lumped us in the same category of Korean. Unlike my identity, sort of being Asian, which I really didn't understand or come to realize until I was much older, my identity as an adopted child and as an orphan is something that I've always had. I mean, I remember my family from a very early age explaining how my brother came by stork and I came by plane, and that was how our family came together. And they were very transparent and clear with me that the reason I was there was because there was a family that decided that they could not take care of me. And so just being an orphan, like that orphan identity is something that is so ingrained in who I am. Like I can't ever remember a time when I didn't realized that how I had come to the family and how I'd come to the country was as an orphan. I had severe anxiety around abandonment, and I always had this fear that my family would 
abandoned me the way that my birth family did. And so I think that a lot of that anger was me testing my family to see how much I could get away with to make sure that they kept me. But I remember just being so angry and but at the same time, like so afraid and so clingy and so fearful of them not being there. One of the ways I took my anger out was I would slam my door both closed and open as hard as I could. And, you know, it would put a hole in the wall in my bedroom. And, you know, the first couple of times my parents fixed it and patched it up. But, you know, there was a point where they just decided to let me have a hole in my bedroom wall. I caught myself as a young adult. I would go to the bathroom in a restaurant when my family was there. And I had this sort of panic attack that when I came out, they might be gone. On a summer road trip in the mid-1980s, Liani's parents fell instantly in love with the Oregon coast. They bought a home outside Coos Bay and soon moved the family across the country. Liani was 12. Her brother, on his way to college in Florida, did not join them. It was an immediate culture shock. It's really rural. I mean, I was in a rural part of upstate New York, but it was still an affluent rural part of upstate New York. Coos Bay, I arrived in the 80s, the late 80s. The logging industry was in a state of decline. The fishing industry was in a state of decline. There was a lot of economic depression and a lot of people out of jobs. A lot of people were angry. And I sort of plopped in as an outsider. I just got bullied by a big group of girls in the high school. And it was just, it was a terrible experience. It was the first time where I realized that my Asian identity was being used against me in a way to put me down and make me feel like less. And I mean, I got in fights. I got suspended. Chink was a regular thing that was scratched onto my locker and other Asian, um, anti-Asian slurs. They would call my house and prank call me and say Ching Chongy or whatever that, you know, crap is. And so... The first thing that happened was the school sort of discounted it. They also didn't really have the tools to deal with it. And they just said, oh, no, no, that's fine. Well, you know, it's not going to happen again. My parents just didn't have the ability or didn't even have like tools to even acknowledge that that was happening to me. And so that was the first time I really felt I don't want to say it was like a rift because it's not like it was a bad relationship with my family, but it was the first time I felt like my family couldn't understand my experience. And at that point, didn't seem like they wanted to understand. And that made it really, really hard because I felt like I didn't have that family support. My parents as kind, good intentioned Midwestern white folks just had no tools to deal with racism. And they were sort of of a mindset that racism is in the past, that people don't do this anymore. And so a lot of what they did was inadvertent, but what they did was they discounted my experience, you know, and, and said, oh, girls will be girls. It's not because you're Asian. It's just because they're mean girls. The girls took turns taunting Liani. So I remember, you know, it was a couple suspensions in and, and the way this works, right? Like I get in a fight, I get suspended for three days. I get in a second fight, I get suspended for six days. You know, my punishment is getting longer and will eventually end up in a, you know, expulsion. Whereas there's 20 girls, they get in one fight, so they get suspended once. So, and I had gone in and I, I was with my parents and we were in the principal's office and I was trying to explain to them that they had this orchestrated plan to get me kicked out of school by just basically lining up and taking turns 
and getting in fights with me. And, you know, I attribute at least partially to them being they didn't like me because I was Asian, like there was gook and chink all over my locker. And then I remember when I got home, you know, what my mom said. And, you know, I I had a really good relationship with my mom. But she just couldn't understand, you know, she just couldn't like get in her head that people could be so cruel. And she just said, oh, you know, it's just a phase. These are just girls being girls. I just felt like so invalidated in terms of what I felt like was happening to me. My family showed up and loved me in all the ways that a family should. It's just that they lacked the tools and the understanding of what it is like to be of a different race. Once you start getting bullied by a bunch of mean girls, your friends like disappear pretty fast, right? Like nobody wants to be associated with you. And so I had a bunch of friends that bailed on me very quickly. As her friends were scattering, Liani remembers that her best friend, Natalie, and a teacher, Mr. Watkins, made her feel a little less alone. Natalie was the one that always stuck by me. She and I didn't have the type of relationship where we could talk about and like process what and why was happening, but... She was physically there for me, which made a huge difference for me. She certainly didn't understand the experience, but she was the one who always ran to the principal's office to make sure that somebody broke up the fight. (laughs) I had one teacher who was just really sympathetic to the situation, and I think he understood that I was being targeted, and he made sure that I was able to make up the work. He just looked out for me and kept me academically on my path, you know, because I could have just spun out of control and just given up on it sort of the school part of school. I have a lot of appreciation for him and really see him as the person in that school that made sure that if I chose, that I would not fail because of it, like that I could still, you know, succeed in school. And so he was a great advocate for me. Not only was, you know, my experience with these girls bullying me the first time when I started realizing that people saw Asian Americans or Asians in sort of a negative light and that could be used against me. As I was becoming an Asian American young woman, I started experiencing some other types of issues. I rode a bus to and from school. It was a long bus ride because it's a rural rural community. I was always like a little bit of a subject of teasing or targeting on the bus because I was different and I was new to the school. But I remember I was a freshman and a senior boy who rode the bus with me sat next to me on the bus. He pulled a knife out on me. And put it up against me and said, chink, go home. But then he also tried to like grope and kiss me. And so it was like just a really confusing experience for me because like he was trying to like expel me. And, you know, clearly he had some um, hostility and hatred towards me. But at the same time, he was trying to, to grope me and kiss me. And so that was like sort of the first time I started realizing how my identity as an Asian woman, how those things sort of intersected. That was the only time somebody pulled a knife on me on a bus. The same boy, you know, sort of harassed me and would try to sit next to me and try to kiss me and throughout that year. And and he wasn't the only boy in school that tried to sit on a bus and kiss me, you know, when I was not into that. People sort of just ignored it. Or if they did see it, it was, it's the kind of community where you just, you don't ask questions. Like, it's, it's a rough town, you know, and so people just kind of mind their own business. I just focused on school, you know, and making sure that I could get the hell out of that town. After a year of steady racist attacks and bullying, her parents decided enough was enough. They hired a lawyer and threatened to sue the school. The school district took notice and, to Liani's great relief, 
was able to bring a swift end to the harassment. This dramatic turn of events left a lasting impression and set Liani's career plans in motion. All of this terrible stuff happened to me when I was a freshman in high school. And one day it just stopped. You know, it just stopped. The way that my parents got this all to stop was they went out and got a lawyer and it stopped. And so for me, like, I wanted that kind of power, right? I wanted to be able to have whatever power lawyers had that they could go in and make that kind of profound change in somebody's life, like with the snap of a finger. Liani, with her heart now set on becoming a lawyer, graduated at the top of her class and received a full scholarship to study at Willamette University in Salem. I went off to Salem, which for me was the big city. And it was the first time when I like actually met other Asian people, like with any regularity. In high school, because I had had such this like negative experience that I attributed at least in part to my race, I rejected everything that I thought might be Asian about me. I bleached my hair really blonde and wore green contacts and just tried to be white. I mean, I just tried to completely reject any sense of Asian identity because I felt like that's how I could survive in a community that hated Asians, um, or at least that's how I perceived the community, right, um, or how I experienced it. When I hit college and I realized there were other Asians around, I sort of went like full on the opposite direction. I really tried to embrace being Asian. I tried to learn more. All of my roommates in college were Japanese exchange students through Willamette's exchange. I joined the Hawaii Club and all of my friends, most of my friends were Asian. And I tried to take some Korean. I only dated Asian men. You know, so I was really like went all on (laughs) the other way. I had an Asian boyfriend for the first time. And this was a big deal for me. And like, I'm like, oh, look at me. I'm finally sort of finding my community. And he refused to take me home because like... He was embarrassed that I couldn't speak Korean. So it was it was just that realization that, okay, this isn't the right fit either. It was sort of that realization that just because I look like I'm Asian doesn't make me part of that community. I'd say I spent most of college and, and some of law school really trying to insert myself into an Asian community where I, I really didn't belong. <laughs> and it took me a while to figure out that that was not going to be the fix for me that that wasn't really my community or my identity either. I think eventually what I found was I could find a way to serve the community as a lawyer, even though I wasn't part of the community necessarily. I mean, I felt like I could sort of contribute to the community with the skills that I brought as a lawyer. And so um, after law school, I started working in Korean and Asian American communities more sort of as a civil rights advocate, using my legal skills and background to help advocate for the community in in ways that I knew I could. Liani, former general counsel to the Oregon Office of the Governor, now works with public, private, and nonprofit clients at Bullard Law. She was the 2020 president of the Oregon State Bar, the first Asian American and the first woman of color to hold this position. Liani is grateful for the many opportunities she's had to drive change both within the system and in the community, and to be a mentor. I feel like I am a public servant at heart. I've had just great opportunities to make change, you know, whether it's for the government client or for the community that it serves. I really like working with governments to make sure that they're diverse, they're accessible, they're inclusive. You know, I think you can make a lot of change from the inside 
I have loved every day of being a lawyer. Law is a really, really white, male-dominated field. And so learning how to navigate the legal profession can be really hard if you don't fit that mold as, you know, the stereotypical lawyer. And so my mentoring has mainly been of, of people who don't fit that stereotypical mold of what a lawyer looks like or acts like. I have just a lot of people that I've mentored over the years to just help them figure out how to thrive in their own body and their own skin and their own experience. It's important for me to be able to show especially Asian women who are going to face some of that stereotype about trying to put you in a box about how you want to, that box of where they think you should be as a lawyer. It's important for me to be able to be a mentor and to show them and work with them and support them that, that they don't have to stay in that box, that, that they can do whatever they want. When I was a kid, like my most prominent identity was as an orphan. When I was in high school, my most prominent identity was as an Asian because I felt like I was getting targeted because I was Asian. And as I moved into like probably law school and beyond, my most prominent identity was as an Asian woman because I feel like that's how people, they see me as an Asian woman, not just as an Asian and not just as a woman, but Asian women has a very specific connotation and stereotypes associated with it. Liani's sense of identity and security has been deeply shaken by a climate of Asian American hate and anti-immigration politics. To combat that animosity, Liani makes a point of sharing her story and speaking out to educate others about hate and violence directed at Asians. It's easy to see highly successful people and be like, oh, it's so easy. Talking to my mentees, talking to other people, talking publicly about the ways in which I have fallen down and that I had to go get mental health treatment, that this hasn't always been easy, that I've made mistakes, that I've been angry, that I've you know taken it out in unhealthy ways. It's important for me to talk about that stuff so that people understand that it's okay if it doesn't come easily. <laughs> you know, like everybody struggles in their own way. My identity as an adoptee, I think I carry with me wherever I go. It's always been my strongest identity as sort of an orphan. It impacts my relationships. It impacts how I view family and impacts my sense of self and security in, in most settings. I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I went from an orphanage doorstep to lawyer. And it's important to me that people understand that the adoption story is not a consistent story for every adoptee. People don't tend to see adoptees as immigrants necessarily. I mean, we come in, we're immigrants, but we come in a different way and we get raised primarily in dominant communities. And I, I think that a lot of the times when people talk about immigrants, they talk about immigration policies, adoptees are not at the table. They, they're just sort of left behind because people just don't consider us immigrants. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was produced by Elena Yusin with audio editing by Rick March. Our executive producer is the tenacious Sankar Raman. Many thanks to Anne Nadel Campbell for supporting this series. To learn more about the Rise Above Hate Coalition, please visit OregonRisesAboveHate.com. For more stories, visit TheImmigrantStory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.